So we're in big trouble. We're definitely getting our third peak. Uh, and it's uh, because the plateau didn't come down. It promises to be higher than ever before. So this will be the highest in the history of the United States. Welcome to the Rain Insights on COVID-19 podcast. I'm Emily Donahue. Today in our ongoing series about COVID-19, Rain founder David Lawrence catches up with doctors Bill Lang and Fred Southwick about the unfolding crisis in the upper Midwest, as well as best practices for holiday travel. Let's listen in. Fred, Bill, uh, once again, thanks. Um, this is Friday, the day after, again, um, COVID-19. The data, the management of the virus took, you know, front stage at the presidential debates. And now's as good a time as any maybe to separate um, fact from fiction and what the data is showing. It would be great to to get an overview of what you're seeing nationally, locally, sort of where the trend lines are. So, Fred, maybe I'll start off with you. Yeah, well, the trend lines when it comes to the Midwest are extremely disturbing. Uh, North Dakota has the highest prevalence in the world, and it's over 100 per 100,000, and their positivity rate is 19%. This is unheard of. And so there is a raging epidemic in North Dakota and also in South Dakota. Wisconsin's having a lot of problems. Iowa's also suffering, and Nebraska is getting a moderately high level. And the overall, the uh, combined number of cases in the U.S. has reached an all-time high of over 70,000 in one day. So we're in big trouble. We're definitely getting our third peak. Uh, and it's uh, because the plateau didn't come down, it promises to be higher than ever before. So this will be the highest in the history of the United States. So it's very, very disturbing. Bill, what would you attribute, you know, this uh, escalation to? It's it's real interesting when you look at the escalation in the the northern plains. Um, yeah, it's it's that's these are fairly low densely populated areas, and when you look at the data and when you take it down to the county level, it's not even that the data is uh, showing that the peak is coming out of the the cities, even though they're fairly small cities in many of these areas, it's it's well distributed throughout these counties. This is hard to explain. Um, uh, I'm hypothesizing a little bit here. You wonder if this is the um, has anything to do with the migrant farm season, and this is the end. This is right at the end of the. Uh, um, harvest season in those in those areas. If that's the case, that's not exactly great news for the rest of the country because what the the um, migrant harvest the harvesting tends to do is now starts moving down south and starts picking up or, or in a more southerly route as they start uh, picking um, and the final clearing of the fields for the second crops in the uh, middle of the country and in the southern part of the country. So I, you know I can't say that that's it. I'm tr- I've been trying to look at what patterns it could be. And basically, most people are saying, we don't see why this is happening um, with this northern tier being the the really, by far, hardest hit area. Bill, do you think the Sturgis uh, motorcycle event had anything to do with this? To me, that was just, it very well could, but that's now two months ago. Yeah. Right. So that, I think that's too remote for that to have a, have had a major event. And especially when that event where what we're seeing now is 
going across the entire northern tier, and that was actually that was a fairly isolated area, although it did mix from all over the country. I was going to say, Bill, it did. Uh, you had people convening from a wide variety of uh, jurisdictions. Yeah, and in my reading, uh, the majority of the people came from North Dakota, South Dakota, Nebraska, Iowa, and those are some of the areas that are are really peaking and. Um, it could be brewing relatively silently and then uh, become very apparent. That's certainly what happened in Seattle early on. So I think it's possible. So, Fred, I know you focus um, not just simply here in the U.S., but you're in touch with uh, many experts around the world. We're seeing, you know, spikes in other countries. And, um, you know, the story is not necessarily an optimistic one. Maybe you can share with the audience what we're seeing on a yeah, global well, basis. India, India has been, uh, I've been in contact with a lot of Indian physicians and they're experiencing an incredible surge. And, and what happened is they initially had a, a very extreme lockdown. And the problem with that is that uh, their poor citizens uh, ran out of money and began starving and they really could not continue that. So they had to open back up. The problem is there's so much crowding that even if you do use masks and you, you cannot socially distance, making it very, very difficult. Uh, the shelter in place did allow them time to develop COVID-19 specific hospitals, which they have, and also upgrade their testing. And they are doing a fair amount of testing. So the hope is they can get it under control, but uh, their population is four times the United States and yet they have fewer cases than we do. So we are in worse shape than India. Then Germany and Italy and Great Britain are experiencing a rise. And the thought is it's probably because they opened up gyms, restaurants, and bars. And the CDC had a very nice MMWR uh, in mid-September that showed that if you ate in a restaurant, uh, you had a 2 point eight times greater risk of developing infection. If you went to a bar or a coffee house, 3.9 times the risk. So these are very uh, high uh, spread areas. And if you have a super spreader that comes to one of those closed environments, you're very likely to get an explosive uh, uh, epidemic, a point, what we call a point source epidemic in those sites. Fred, I I agree with you. Um, In a lot of the counseling, so to speak, that I do with organizations. You know, we look at these organizations, they can't tell people not to travel. But what they can tell people is if you travel, you can't come back into the office for you know, typically 14 days afterwards. And you know, what I, what I tell them is you need to look at the, the disease rates where they have, where they are going to the the rate of change of the of the rates where they're going to but then most importantly i think what they're doing when they get there and it's going to bars and restaurants for example and and weddings and things like that weddings to me i think are a special case that are especially dangerous um and we've seen plenty of cases associated with that so it's really looking at those those factors i think um that people can do that on, on an individual basis also but it's where you're going but very 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 importantly, what you're doing when you get there. And I think the other factor that, you know, for most of the, you know, since the early part of this epidemic, uh, certainly since the summertime, we've been saying, yeah, okay, cases are up, but death rates aren't. Well, 
over the last week or so, we've seen significant increases in death rates. Missouri, for example, a 267% increase in the death rate. And that's not coming from, it's not just because it's an incredible change from a very low number. Um, it's Missouri had about the same as the rest of the country. Now, certainly most places are not seeing that type of number, but we have um, at, least, at least seven states in the U.S. that have a doubling in the death rate in just the last seven days. Amongst the data, there's some additional questions that have come up, including whether uh, some people have contracted the virus more than once. Any, any thoughts around that? And, you know, we continue to learn about this. And I know you guys have made that point on a regular basis. Um, there have been uh, several cases, and they're well documented in that they sequenced the viruses and they were different genotypes, which means these were new infections, not a relapse of an old infection. However, they're very rare. And I heard an excellent presentation uh, from an investigator in New York City looking at antibody levels in over 4,000 uh, patients from New York City. And what they have found, uh, you know, all of what's been publicized is that the antibodies go down very quickly. That is not the case. They drop a few titers, but then they stay at a very high and protective level for as long as he has followed them. And he's followed a large number. So it does appear that in general, individuals will be protected, will have protective levels of antibody for a prolonged period. So or recurrent infections will be rare. It will happen, but it's going to be rare. So, Bill, along those lines, uh, we had uh, an FDA approval this week, and maybe you could give us your perspectives and, you know, basically uh, dumb it down for the audience in terms of uh, what was approved and, and how it can provide value in the, uh, at least in the treatment, if not the prevention. Well, it got a lot of news. It basically is fairly meaningless because everybody has been using remdesivir, which was the um, agent that was did have formal full approval by the uh, CDC. It just means that some paperwork doesn't have to be done now because it just can be used like you can use any other uh, approved medication with any with any patient for which it meets the indications or but that's that's the use of it. So I don't see this as really having any effect. The other side of it, though, however, is when you bounce that against just the week before, the World Health Organization came out and said that remdesivir wasn't showing any benefit. Well, unfortunately, when you look at the data from the from the World Health Organization, well, maybe I should say fortunately, when you look at the data from the World Health Organization, it wasn't the cleanest data to begin with. And it also looked at a population um, where it was used only in severely ill patients. Because in much of the world, because of the difficulty of availability outside of much of the developed world especially, Remdesivir is not easy to get, so they've only been using it in the sickest patients. And in the sickest patients, like many other antivirals, it is not as effective. It is most useful when given rel relatively early in the disease. Uh, it hasn't been shown to be useful as a prophylactic, um, as we use Tamiflu in prophylaxis sometime, post-exposure prophylaxis for flu. It has not been found useful in that setting, um, but it is it is useful in the setting of someone who has developed a disease and may be on the route to severe disease. Um, giving it giving it to them early that's been and that's what what the CDC approved it for. 
Fred, do you have some views just in uh, terms? And, and I get the point, Bill. It's less of a, uh, a groundbreaking announcement than sort of a confirmation of what you know doctors knew. But, Fred, your perspectives. I, I, I agree with Bill. Um, it's not a home run, but actually it is an excellent drug. It's been shown to decrease the viral load in the blood. And uh, the other thing that I, I maintain that one thing we could do um, is for those that are elderly and are at high risk, they should get this, this medication before they get very sick. And I predict that that will abort many of the inflammatory complications. And the problem with elderly with underlying diseases, they cannot tolerate that stress. Their body can't tolerate it. But if you get the remdesivir, get the viral load down, that inflammatory response, that inflammation will not occur and they should do very well, and we have the potential to reduce the mortality in those over 60. So at the debate last night, there was a, a certain amount of political banter back and forth uh, just about the vaccine and its availability. You guys have already commented that even if it is approved, uh, the rollout will be slow, the adoption will be slow. But um, your best perspective in terms of what people should expect in terms of um, a vaccine that is approved by the FDA that might have a reasonable uh, chance of adoption? I'll take a first stab at this. I, I will admit right up front that I tend to be optimistic, some would say overly optimistic, about the distribution approach. Um, I think what we heard yesterday from Alex Azar, the uh, Secretary of uh, Health and Human Services, was that he thinks that we will likely have two vaccines that are at the EUA stage, the emergency use authorization stage, right around the end of the year. Unfortunately, the problem with the two vaccines is that they require shipment and storage at 112 degrees below zero. Um, that is not routine shipment uh, capability. Um, I do have experience with the national stockpile. Part of the management of that came out of an office I used to be in. The logistics systems are notionally there to be able to do, to make those kinds of, of supply movements. Um, being able to do it on the you know 330 million person scale is going to be difficult, no doubt about it. Uh, but I think that we will be able to effectively start the immunization process, probably having on the order of 100 million doses um, that are available around the end of the year, plus or minus a month, probably. Um, but then that's only going to be enough, especially because these are likely going to be two-dose vaccines. Um, that's only going to be you know, the first dent in the uh, number of people that need to get vaccinated. And then it will be over the, the first half of the year. Um, some people say longer. Again, I think I'm, I'm optimistic about it. Over the first half of the year that we can get vaccinations to everybody who needs slash wants it. Fred, your thoughts? Um, I, I agree with Bill. Bill actually knows more about this distribution than I do. Um, that's going to be the challenge. I, there's every reason to believe one of these vaccines will be effective. And I think this, this recent antibody level, the persistence of antibodies, is very encouraging that you will be protective. So uh, I, and, and the key issue I, is what's going on now. Are there going to be any serious side effects? 
and there have the tr two trials have been temporarily stopped. But then I think both of did Johnson and Johnson start up again? I know they stopped, but I didn't hear if they started. But anyway, there have been a few uh, glitches, and that's to be expected when you have a trial. But I predict there will. I agree with uh, Bill. There will be a safe, at least one, probably two safe vaccines that will be effective. And and I, I would agree. I would think by spring, we should have most people immunized. One of the keys is going to be to prioritize who gets the vaccine first. I think it should be first responders and the elderly would my, be my choices. Um, and what in um, Secretary Azar's announcement yesterday, he said first is um, healthcare workers, second is first responders, third will be the elderly, with an emphasis on institutionalized elderly. Without being glib, I was going to suggest a, a press conference where whoever is president and the cabinet members are the first to take it um, and let the American people see that. I, I agree with you completely. One of the most important parts of this whole thing is going to be not only proving to the extent we can prove that this vaccine is, is safe, but convincing people that the vaccine is, is safer than the alternative not, of not getting vaccinated. Yeah, one of the issues is really trust. And we've talked about the problem with disinformation and the fact that because of all the different messages, people are not as trusting as they once were. So I think it's going to be important uh, for the administration uh, to regenerate that trust. One of the problems, everybody agrees, once you lose trust, it's really hard to get it back. In a couple minutes we have left in the coming weeks and months, what are you telling your various patients, institutions, fellow doctors, et cetera, in terms of what they should be doing for themselves and their families? Well, one of, one of the things that I am very worried about is the holiday celebrations. Thanksgiving and Christmas are periods where it's very tempting to get bring family members from far away together. And many of the most devastating outbreaks have been in these situations where families get together and they've traveled from distances. There is someone who is asymptomatic that has a high titer virus. And because everybody is sitting inside, gathered together, talking, the uh, individuals get very high doses of the virus and they go on to die. What a guilt trip that is. So I, I think we've really got to discourage people from family gatherings during this period because we're having a surge right now, and it's likely that's going to continue through Thanksgiving and possibly Christmas. So that would be my number one message. Do not have family gatherings this year. I And I have to agree. Just as you said, that's going to be devastating. So I think that minimizing that is a very important feature. And just in terms of air travel and uh, general car travel, any particular advice for people? Uh, yeah, the, uh, there, there have actually been some guidelines now released. And um, I, the, what's really good news is the airplanes themselves exchange air multiple times very quickly. There are HEPA filters that are filtering that air, so it is uh, sterile and safe. Uh, the problem is if you get up and walk around the plane, you're more likely uh, to uh, be exposed 
So the message should be wear a mask the entire time. Do try not to get up if you possibly can. And then the big problem appears to be the airports themselves and the standing in lines. And so there you've got to be very careful to distance yourself. Uh, but the actual airplane trip itself, if everybody's wearing a mask, is pretty safe. I, I agree completely. There, was, uh, there were some studies released that DOD, the U.S. Department of Defense, did in conjunction with United Airlines that they just released uh, this week, where they did very, very elegant studies looking at, at risks of transmission on planes, both in flight and on the ground. And they found that the risk of transmission for people who are seated in a seat, even if you are right next to somebody who is infected, is actually pretty low. But the, just uh, just as Fred was saying, the the risk is not being in the seat, even though it's for a long time. The the biggest risks, as I've had it described to me, is the standing in lines, especially on jet bridges. Jet bridges typically have very poor circulate uh, ventilation, and then the other bad time is getting off the plane. Because you think about it, when you're on a plane, the first thing everybody does is stand up. And now you have everybody standing up and you're all cram uh, crammed together. The best thing to do, stay in your seat until it's your time to get up because they're keeping the ventilation systems going. But if you can if you can make yourself stay in the seat, you're going to be much better off than if you're getting right up there in the level where everybody is up and breathing. Great advice. I want to thank both of you. And I assume um, that you'd also be advising people to get their flu shots this season. I already got mine. I got mine. Again, uh, Fred, Bill, as always, insights are very, very helpful. And uh, look forward to circling back with you, uh, hopefully in about a week or so. Stay safe. Great. Thank you, David. Thank, Thank you, David. You,